Well, it is, uh, it's December, it's December, and you know what that means. It's time for the annual two to four part Christmas sermon series in which Christian pastors across the world struggle to find just one more angle to take on a story their churchgoers know better than their own reflections. You're supposed to laugh a little more. You thought, you thought finding a Christmas gift for Aunt Marge was difficult? Hey, try preaching the annual Christmas sermon series. Aunt Marge's sweater at TJ Maxx is an easy pick compared to the Christmas sermon series. You know what I'm saying? Of course, this time of year uh, isn't just hard on the pastor. It's hard on those of you in the pew, I know, uh, who were coming in here thinking, oh boy, here we go again. It's the Christmas sermon series. You know, I, I heard as I was walking in today, I heard some of you uh, making bets. I heard you. Don't, I, I did. I heard you. Some of you, come on now, be honest. How many of you were taking bets on whether or not it was going to be Matthew or Luke this year? Or, and some of you were saying, no, no, I think he's going to be in Isaiah this year, right? How many thought it was Isaiah? None of you. Okay. A few of you. Uh, some of you were uh, waking up this morning and you were thinking, let's see. I'll give it two to one odds that it'll be a three-part series on the wise men. You know, part one, gold, part two, frankincense, and part three, myrrh, right? So these are some of the things that, you know, we, we come to the table during the Christmas season and we think, well, what's new? What's new this year? What's, what can I possibly learn in a Christmas sermon series? And so this year... This year and this year alone, I've decided to preempt those here-we-go-again feelings that you're having. That's right. I'm calling your bluff, and I'm calling my bluff. And the title of this year's annually mandated set of Christmas messages is Another Ho-Hum Christmas Series. That's right. It's extremely exciting. It's a creative title, and I know it's perked your interest. Right? Some of you. Some of you are still very skeptical. Others of you are concerned that you lost your bet that it was the annual three-part series on the wise men. Nevertheless, we're going to do another ho-hum Christmas series. And I mean it. Ho-hum, of course, being Latin for about as exciting as a monotonous tone. But I hope you know I'm being a a bit facetious right now. Right? I'm not... uh, Not about the title of the sermon series. That actually is the title of the sermon series. But I mean facetious about my demeanor toward Christmas messages. You see, I don't believe that Christmas messages are a waste of time. I do believe they are among some of the more difficult messages to prepare because they they require a great deal of creativity to capture an audience who knows the story of the baby born in Bethlehem so well. Now, coming into my, uh, my, I think this would be my fifth Christmas sermon series, you know, the creative juices, sometimes they're, they're not always flowing. And, and so, you, as a pastor, you can get to a point where there's a little bit of drought, a little bit of uh, dryness, a lack of inspiration. And what's interesting about that dryness and that drought is that it's precisely the kind of dryness and drought that the people of the first century were experiencing in and around the time of Jesus' birth. You see, while awaiting the coming of her Messiah, 
the people of Israel were in a time of drought. Not, not physical drought, mind you. But not, not like a physical water drought, but a spiritual drought, a national drought. You see, it had been, there, there's so many things that have been happening during that time frame. On the one hand, it had been some 400 years since the last inspired prophetic word of God had come to the people through the prophet Malachi. Some 400 years, 450 years since anyone had spoken authoritatively on behalf of the Lord. Israel had gone from being a vassal state from Babylon to Persia to Greece and now to Rome. Hundreds of years of being subject to another nation. There was great economic challenge in the land. There was great social and cultural disparity in the land. Sounds not unlike our times today. Israel was oppressed at the hands of Caesar and of the Herodian dynasty in Palestine. And the struggle, the, the struggle for any pious Jew in and around the time of the Messiah's birth was how to stay expectant in drought. How to stay expectant in drought. And that is the title of this part one in our sermon series, Another Ho-Hum Christmas Series. How to stay expectant in drought. We catch a small vignette of this challenge in the story of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to park it here uh, for our time here this morning. Luke chapter 1. The title of this message is Expectant in Drought. Luke chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5. We pick up the story in verse 5 here. Let's read it together. Luke 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. What's taking place in this passage? This is kind of a, a peculiar setting, one that we're not very accustomed to because we don't understand maybe all of the, the cultural ramifications of what's happening here. But essentially, we have a man named Zacharias, a Jew, a Levite, a member of the priestly family. It says he was uh, of the division of Abijah. Now, Abijah was one of 24 grandsons of Aaron the priest, brother of Moses during the Exodus. And from Aaron came four sons, and from uh, two sons came 24 grandsons. And Abijah was one of those grandsons. And so the priestly family of Israel was uh, taken from these 24 grandsons of Aaron. 
And each one was, was given a, a time to serve the Lord. We'll get to that in just a moment. You can read about some of the, the genealogy if you're really interested in First Chronicles chapter 24. And Luke, Luke he, he's describing this man, Zacharias, and he says among many things, he says, Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. They believed in the Lord God of Israel. They loved Him. They served Him. They were faithful. But in the midst of their piety was great drought. A time of incredible dryness and want. What, was that, what did that drought look like for Zacharias and Elizabeth? Well, first, it, it was that they had no child. Uh, and that's a big deal in the ancient Near East. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. To have no child in the ancient Near East, in this time frame, uh, in the land of Palestine, was, uh, was a, a, a mar on the family. It was a stain on the family name. Uh, children were everything in that culture. And it, it, mainly because, number one, they could provide economic uh, subsistence and protection um, but it was, it was uh, often understood that to, to be barren in that day, in the mind of an Israelite, was a sign of curse or disfavor. It wasn't necessarily an accurate picture of how God was operating in the life of that family, but nevertheless, that was the perception of the Jews toward those who were barren. Great drought. They had no child. Secondly, though, Zacharias is going through the motions of his routine priestly duties. We see here Zacharias doing the same thing he and his Levitical kinsmen had done many times before. He was putting in his time of service at the temple. Now, scholars estimate that there were some 20,000 priests active uh, from the descendants of Aaron, and each priest was called upon to serve a couple weeks a year. And if you do the math, on any given week, there were some 700 priests serving in and around the Temple Mount, the court of the temple. 700! And, and the temple court was no bigger, uh, well, it was, a, was a substantial size, but nevertheless, uh, the, the, the whole temple area, I should say, was about seven football fields. But then the inner temple court was about one football field. And that's primarily where these duties would have, would have taken place. So imagine 700 people serving and performing various offerings and rituals and sacrifices and different priestly duties all in one football field. It, it got a little uh, crowded. It got a little packed. 700 men in that area was a bit of a squeeze, not to mention those coming in to offer sacrifice, to give tithes. They, uh, they were probably you know, uh, busy for a time you know, during uh, rush hour offering times, like 7.30 to 8.30 a.m. And, and 5 to 6 in the evening. Really? Nobody's, I mean, what's going on, guys? You know? Did you not have coffee this morning? Am I just not that funny? I mean, really, I, I, Tom, am I just not that funny? 
so, you know, they might have been busy for a time during the day, but there was a lot of time where these guys were just standing around. 700 men, there's only a certain amount of duties to perform in the temple on any given day. It's kind of like, you know, the, the, uh, Corey tells me, you know, the military reserves meetings. You know, he goes to the military reserves weekends, and basically 700 guys show up, and a lot of times they're just kind of standing around, right, Corey? Somewhat, okay, somewhat, all right. And so, other, uh, you know, there was a considerable amount of time for these priests, some 700 a week, to just kind of be going through the motions of their annual priestly service. Luke tells us that Zacharias was advanced in years in verse 7. So he had done his priestly duties time and time again and had grown quite accustomed to them. He was used to them. Same old, same old. And you know, we can get that way too. We can kind of get into that routine, can we not? Especially around the Christmas season. We, we, we open up the garage and there, there's the, the boxes and there's the same old decorations the same old lights. We're going through the, the same old shopping that we do. The maybe similar parties that we've gone to and traditions and different family functions. And we're kind of going through the motions. And, you know, worst of all, sometimes some of you have the same old tree. I, I hate to say it, but I, I show, I'm going to show an example here. How many of you can identify with this picture here? Can you identify with that? Raise your hand right now. Shame on you. All right, I just want to say shame on you. Plastic trees, really? Come on, it's supposed to be like this. Let me show you. That's what it's supposed to be. You're supposed to go out and supposed to cut it down, Leela, you know? Right? Oh, okay, all right. You know, I, I don't understand plastic trees, so I don't get same old trees. I've got to have the real thing, even if I have to go to Home Depot to get it. I mean, you know, I would like to go up to Big Bear to chop one down, but, you know, I... Don't always have the time. We can get into a rut, into a routine. And sometimes um, we can get into a been there, done that, kind of a dull moment, kind of a dry, kind of a drought going through the motions. And I'm asking us the question today, how do we muster up that spirit? How do we concoct that new life, that joy, that can rid ourselves of the dryness of the uninspiring nature of routine, how can we find new life and new hope when we're going through the same old season? You know, the, the truth is we can't. We can't uh, make it up. We can't concoct it on our own. We can't by our own flesh incite new life. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is the agent of new life. Of a new spirit within us. When we believe in Christ, the Spirit is the one by whom we are regenerated, reborn, given new life. He gives us this life. He, in a sense, overshadows us at the moment of faith. He comes to indwell in us in our human heart. Our life, our eternal life, is granted to us through the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. But not just our eternal life, but our life blood. What keeps us going hour by hour, day by day, week by week, is the Holy Spirit. Any feeling of expectation, any feeling of intimacy, any feeling of closeness with God 
These are not willed by the flesh. You cannot will yourself to be intimate with God. You cannot will yourself to draw near to the Lord, to become an expectant person. These are fundamentally Spirit-led in nature. And that is why the psalmist says, be still, be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. That, that final word there, Selah, is, uh, is actually, it's not uh, written in, uh, by King David. It's actually an addition um, to many parts of the book of Psalms in which a worship leader, really, um, a worship leader of the Jews would insert moments into the biblical text where he wanted the people to pause and to quiet their heart and to take in what was just read. Be still. Be still. Selah. Let that sink down deep. The intimacy, the closeness, the newness you seek with the Lord. You cannot create it. It comes by dependence. It comes by quieting our heart and letting the Spirit in. And so here we are at Christmas amidst the busyness of the year's activities, parties, traditions. We must find a way to quiet our hearts. To ask the Spirit of the living God to be invited in to help us grow in expectation and hope. We all have, we all have Christmas traditions. Every single one of us. But if the Spirit of God is not participating in and through the routine of the season, our family traditions will become but old and dull and uninspiring moments. They will become, as it were, ho-hum. In the midst of our traditions, the Holy Spirit needs to be called upon to bring new life, to bring new joy and inspiration into our midst. You know, and recently, um, I've had ex experiences of this recently in my life. Having come back from Haiti, uh, I've been thinking more and more about just the, the spiritual nature of this world. Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against principalities and powers. Uh, having come from Haiti, you come from... Uh, those of you that have gone, many of you, you come from a land that uh, is, yes, in the Western Hemisphere, but is not the West. It is not the West. The West is, we live in the left brain, in the, in the thinking mode, in the, in the realm of the mind, in the realm of logic. And in Haiti, it's the right brain. It's the realm of the Spirit. It's the realm of uh, just a heightened awareness of the senses and what is around you what is happening and how the Holy Spirit is working and how the enemy is working in your midst. And so having come from Haiti, I'm, I'm, I'm coming into the Christmas season now and I'm feeling um, I'm, I'm heightened. I have a heightened sense of just the role of the Holy Spirit. How much He needs to minister to me 
if this season is going to be meaningful to me and my family. My time in Haiti was a time of remembering just how spiritual this life is. And inevitably, when I pause and when I quiet my heart, when I ask the Spirit of God to minister to me, to fill me with His presence, He gives it to me. He gives it to me. This ministry, you know, the ministry of the Spirit, it manifests itself in different ways, His ministry does. And each of you know that I, I'm not one to, um, to emphasize the, the charisma of the Spirit. Um, but the Word of God speaks to the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who, who overshadows us. In fact, that's precisely the terminology He used to speak of the, the conception of Christ in Mary. Mary was told that the Holy Spirit of God would overshadow her and that she would be with child. And in the same way today, in different ways today, the Spirit is overshadowing us. He is filling us. He is ministering to us. But particularly when we ask Him for it. Because if we're just focused on our Western left-brained logic, it is difficult for the Holy Spirit to have a meaningful impact on our hearts on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour basis. This is not a matter of uh, superstition. We need to ask the Holy Spirit of God to quiet our hearts and to give us moments of pause in our days, in the weeks ahead, to bring us into the true spirit of this season. And I encourage you, if you ask Him for that, I believe He will give that to you. When we don't ask, sometimes the Lord intervenes. And we see here in the story of Zacharias in Luke 1, Zacharias was asking. He was asking quite a bit. In fact, he was praying, we're going to see, he was praying for a son. But in the end, we see him going through a little bit of routine. And God had to step in. And it says in verse 8 that Zechariah's lot was drawn. Do you see that in verse 8? Let's read it together here. It says, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah's lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now many of you have asked, and I, I wanna, I'm here declaring it now for the first time, many of you have asked me, time and time again, about the historical origins and historicity of church bingo. This is where it comes from. It, there's, a, there's a little bit of a gambling going on here. There's a little bit of a casting of lots. You know, Jack, when he went to overseas, there was 27 pastors. There were five pigs. He said, sorry guys, we're going to draw names. See who gets the pig. How many of you have played church bingo before? We haven't ever done it here at Coast. We need, you guys want to do church bingo one of these days? We're going to do it. We're going to do it. All right? But here we have the priests. Think about this. This is significant. We have the priests, 700 of them, drawing straws in a figure of speech. Okay? Trying to figure out who's got the shortest or the longest stick so that they can perform this great service in the temple of the Lord. 
And Zacharias, the lot fell to him. And we must stop and recognize right now for just a moment the honor of this moment. Zacharias wasn't seeking it. He was kind of going through the routines. Years and years, he was advanced in age, serving God day in and day out. 450 years of drought, Roman occupation. Lord, what is going on? But now, the Lord intervenes. And Zacharias is given the lot of burning the incense in the temple. Now, the hour of incense that's described here in Luke is actually two hours in a day, one in the morning and one in the late afternoon. It, in effect, it, it symbolizes prayer. In fact, that's why the psalmist speaks of uh, incense and prayer together. Let's, uh, let's take a look and read this. Lord, in Psalm 141, Lord, I cry out to You. Make haste to Me. Give ear to My voice when I cry out to You. Let My prayer be set before You as incense the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And so the burning of incense at this time frame was one that was done in in symbolic gesture of the lifting up of the prayers of Israel. And there was a one in 700 chance that Zacharias would be called upon to perform this service. Quite good fortune. In fact, uh, the... the, uh, the rabbis indicate that once you were selected, you would never do it again. You would only be selected one time to burn uh, the incense in the temple. And once you had, if you were fortunate enough to, to have that one service in your lifetime, that would be the only time you could do it. One in 700 chance, and Zacharias gets it. In the midst of the spiritual and national drought, God had bestowed upon him some much needed inspiration. Yet such late-breaking passion was not enough to prepare Zacharias for what lay in store for him as he took the burning incense into the altar. Let's pick up the story in verse 11. Luke writes, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth, she will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and rejoice, and many will rejoice at his birth. For John will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, And He will also go before Him, that is to say, the coming Messiah, Jesus. He will also go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Here we find Zacharias with great fortune, great blessing, being selected as the bearer of incense in the temple. And we see this good fortune amplified even further in this spiritual experience of life-changing proportions. An angel of the Lord, who will be identified in the very next verse as the angel Gabriel, 
has appeared to Zacharias and has declared to him that the time for hope and expectation is now. Zacharias, in his ripe old age, would be a father. And not just any father, but the, pro- the father of the promised forerunner and precursor of the Messiah. The prophet Malachi had spoken of this great forerunner in Malachi 3 and 4. And Zacharias was now informed that this great man of Israel, this great precursor to the Messiah, would be none other than his son. Of all the honors, of all the honors in Israel, this would have been among the chief among the chief honors in all the land. A chief mark of distinction. A tremendous outpouring of spiritual and national blessing upon the people of the Jews. Any Jewish father, given this news, would have rejoiced. Would have been overjoyed. But of course, when dryness and when monotony when drought, when a time of withering is what we've been going through, then great news of hope and great news of joy, the impact that they have upon us, wane in strength. And such is the case with Zacharias. How did he respond to some of the greatest news he has ever heard? Coming out of a time of drought, verse 18. Verse 18 says, And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. You know, the Gospel writer Luke uh, is quite gracious towards Zacharias. Earlier on, we read that he was a righteous man. He was obedient. He was faithful. Him and Elizabeth both were faithful to the Lord. He was a man of God, no doubt. And he called upon the Lord for a son. He was asking. He was expectant for a time. But then came that moment of routine and those years of drought, and they got to him. They got to him so much that even when an angel of the Lord appeared to him and declared this great news of hope, this great news of expectation, this news that any Jewish father would have heard from an angel of the Lord and responded with unbelievable joy and jubilation. But when you come through a time of drought, and you've come through a time of despair, and all you're thinking about is the woes of life, and all you're thinking about is the subjugation to Rome, to the powers of this world, to the struggles in economics, then great news kind of gets tainted. It kind of... uh, you kind of go, well, oh, really? Really, Gabriel? How do I know what you're saying to me is, is true? Sure, I know. You're an angel. and I've never seen an angel. And, uh, but how do I know this is true? I'm an old man, well advanced in years. I, I've, been, I've done my service in the temple. Yeah, this is the first time I've, I've been able to do the incense. And this is pretty special, but... Yeah, I don't know, Gabriel. I think I'm going to need a a sign or something. 
I'm reminded of, a, of an old, uh, a, a, terribly, a, a terribly poor comedy movie in which Steve Martin was in, and he was asking for a sign, and he was, he was uh, in, in his house, and he was, he was like, give me a sign, give me a sign, and there was voices from heaven, and the pictures in the wall was rotating, and smoke was rising up, and after it was all done, Steve Martin sits there and goes, just, just give me a sign, any sign will do, you know? What are we asking for? What are we waiting for? What are we looking for? It's right before our eyes. Zacharias was a man of God, but he had moments of distraction. And how do I know this? Because when an angel of the Lord appeared to him and declared to him the greatest news he had ever heard, he was unsure about it. An expectant man does not say the words of verse 18. A person who is vigilant and awake and expectant of the Lord to do mighty things, such a person does not say the words of verse 18. How shall I know this? For I am an old man. Zechariah's unexpectant response was not taken lightly by the Lord. Verse 19, we conclude. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe My words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. One of the Bible dictionaries had a fascinating comment I wanted to share with you. Fawcett's Dictionary records, Zacharias' unbelief at the angel's announcement of John's birth was retributively punished by dumbness. Get this a warning to Israel of the consequences of unbelief if the nation should reject the Gospel. While Mary, he goes on to write, while Mary, on the contrary, was an example of the blessedness which would flow if they believed. We have you know, two, two dramatic contrasts. Zacharias, angel appears, Declares to him glad tidings. Zacharias goes, I don't know. I'm not so sure. Mary. You read the passages there in Luke. Mary, she had questions, no doubt. She had questions for the angel. But they weren't questions of doubt. They were questions of clarification, of understanding. And the Gospel of Luke records that Mary believed the Word from the Lord. And Elizabeth later on calls her blessed for that faith. Blessed for that expectancy. You see, to be a man or woman of God is one thing. But to be continually vigilant and expectant of God to do great things is quite another. Zacharias was a man of God, but he failed in expectancy. Over 400 years of spiritual and national dryness and monotony had crushed, had squeezed the spirit of expectancy out of him. And when we lose that spirit of expectancy, when we grow cold to the hope 
and inspiration that a season like this should bring. When we come to believe that life is just kind of dry, kind of dull, kind of monotonous, when we're resolved in our spirit that hope is dead, then not even an angel of the Lord can convince us otherwise. Even if we were to ask for a sign, if the Lord were to give it, those many years of disillusionment, those many years in which we've let our minds, yeah, yeah, this has been tough. Yeah, I, I've been struggling. Lord, where are You? God, I, I don't like my lot in life. I'm, this, is, this is dry. This is, this is dull. This is uninteresting. I'm not going to learn anything. When we have that mindset, not even an angel of the Lord can persuade us otherwise. You catch that? Not even the sign of God will persuade us otherwise. And so the lesson from our ho-hum Christmas series is yet we can be good before God But let us also be eager before God. Let us be confident that He can do more in and through us. Let us be confident that He can do more in our lives, in our families' lives, in the life of our church. If there was ever a time to be expectant of God, it is in this season. For a time such as this reminds us that God for us did what no man could fathom. That He incarnated, that He came to earth as a baby to save us from our sins and to give us new life by faith in Him. If God has done that, far be it from us to expect anything less of Him henceforth. So I don't know what, how your Christmas season has begun. Maybe it's begun in dryness. Maybe you've come through a, a long and dry year. And maybe you've come... Here today, and you thought, ah, Christmas, what could I learn? I know this story. The season of the year, it's the same lights, the same tree, the same decorations, the same party. When you walk through with that Spirit, not even an angel of the Lord can convince you out of it. But, when you come to have high expectation of your Lord, an expectation which is based on good evidence, Because He incarnated. Because He came to this earth to save you from your sins and to give you, instill in you, new life. When you come remembering that, you will grow in expectancy. You will see in those traditions new life. You will see in the the routine of the season, you will... Ask God, God, bless this time. Bless this moment with my family, which we do every year. Make it new, make it fresh. Bless this time in our church. The things we do every year, the, the, the musical, the Christmas Eve service, but this year, make it new, make it fresh. Fill it with life. Let it not be dry. 
Let us not think of the drought. Let us be expectant. Expectant in drought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I I thank You for this time of year. Father, uh, we can take one of two paths. Two paths we know all too well. Lord, we can just go through the motions or we can see in this time new life. We can invite Your Spirit to instill new life and joy and hope and expectancy in a season in which all those things should be at an all-time high. Lord, we can be good and holy before You, but we can fail in expectancy. We see that in the story of Zacharias. And so God, my prayer for us this season, my prayer for me, for my family, for my church, God, I pray, help us, Lord, to remove all thoughts of dryness and drought and to come afresh into this time of year, expectant and hopeful of all of the things that You can and will do. Minister to our hearts, Lord. Send Your Spirit afresh upon this people. Give us new life and hope this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.